everybody, I'm John Miller, and this is Everybody Trades. And that music can only mean one thing. We're going to discuss The Godfather. In terms of, as you might imagine if you've listened to me before, in terms of politics, money, power, and most specifically, for this particular episode, we're going to focus on political power and what exactly that all entails. And you know, a lot of people over the years have compared political power to a mafia, and there's a lot of great examples of that in the Godfather series, and we're going to hear some bites from that here in just a little bit. But first, I do want to point out that, yes, we're going to be spoiling this, what, 45-year-old movie here? Yeah. So if you haven't seen The Godfather, and like you, my wife hadn't until recently, until we just had recently watched it again, I'd watched it for, gosh, maybe the fifth time or something like that, but it was her maiden voyage, and if you haven't seen this thing, by golly, go do it right now. In fact, stop listening and go watch the DVDs, will ya? Or stream it on Netflix, whatever you gotta do. And don't do the in chronological order thing. That's weird, how they recut it and put everything in chronological order so you see the Robert De Niro flashback sequences first. Yeah, don't do that. Watch it in the real order in which it was originally intended, folks. But anyway, with that, before we get going, I guess I should actually define the main thing we're here to talk about today, and that's political power. Political power essentially gives everyone who has it the legal right to aggression. Now, what is aggression? Especially what is aggression in contrast to defense? Well, aggression is obviously me punching you in the face for no reason. That's an obvious act of aggression. But if you can see that I'm about to punch you in the face and you parry my punch and throw a counter punch to my jaw, well, I would call that defense, right? I think we can all say that is pretty obvious. We know what aggression is and we know what self-defense is. Now, yes, are there certain circumstances in the history of mankind where that's gotten a little murky? Sure. But for the for the point of this, essentially political power is just that. It's aggression. It's me saying that, all right, unless you follow these laws, then I'm going to aggress upon you. I'm going to either fine you, tax you, or if you refuse to comply with either of those things, put you in jail. And indeed, if you refuse with my arrest, my thing, my political power, my creed to my decree to put you in jail, well, guess what? I'll shoot you dead. That is political power. And you know what? That does sound a little bit like a mafia, doesn't it? But some people will say, oh no, well, the thing is there's a social contract. I always hear that a lot. And that's something I bring up a lot. Well, you know, it's me, a contract means that you have the right to refuse. And that's actually something that was addressed very early on in this famous clip and The Godfather. And now here we're here we're going to hear Michael Corleone played by Al Pacino, and then we're also going to hear Kay, who later becomes Kay Corleone, his wife, played by Diane Keaton. Here we go. Well, when Johnny was first starting out, he was signed to this personal service contract from the big band leader. And as his career got better and better, he wanted to get out of it. Now, Johnny is my father's godson. And my father went to see this band leader. 
and he offered him $10,000 to let Johnny go. But the band leader said no. So the next day, my father went to see him, only this time with Luca Brazzi. And within an hour, he signed a release for a certified check of $1,000. How'd he do that? My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head, and my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. That's a true story. Okay, I should have pointed out that Johnny is kind of an obvious nod to Frank Sinatra, or at least many people have always speculated that, and it seems pretty clear to me as well. But the point is there that obviously any contract where you have an offer you can't refuse, where, again, your brains are going to be splattered onto the contract if you don't sign it, no one could reasonably call that a proper contract. But in fact, that's what the government does all the time in this country and certainly countries all over the world. Now, obviously, this is a shocking moment for young Kay, who is Michael's date to his sister's wedding. She's quite shocked to hear this. And eventually, Michael obviously joins in the family and becomes a big part of it and be- and uh, actually takes a part in some violent acts and commits murder to the point where he has to leave Italy, or I'm sorry, leave America and go to Italy for a while, leaving Kay behind. Well, he comes back, somehow wins her back over. She's still a little bit, you know, scared of the whole mafia thing. Let's put it that way. So here he is back trying to win Kay over, but she's still not convinced that his family is a good thing. And here's their interaction. My father's no different than any other powerful man. Any man who's responsible for other people. Like a senator or a president. You know how naive you sound. Why? Senators and presidents don't have men killed. Oh. Who's being naive, Kay? So again, Michael clearly knows the world here. At least the way he sees the world. The way he sees it is the world is run by aggression and that if somebody's obviously whoever's in charge is going to be aggressive and that's just the way of the world now frankly i disagree with that whole philosophy but if you actually look at human history that is certainly how it's mostly been done somebody dominates a territory with power with aggression and then they hold that territory with again more threats of aggression that does appear to be the pattern Now, Michael starts off as sort of the golden child in this series. He's a veteran of World War II, a decorated war hero that comes back with much acclaim and much pride from the whole family. But one thing Richard Mayberry, who's one of my biggest influences, says about political power is that it corrupts the morals and the judgment. And clearly when Michael gets his own form of if not political power, then certainly mafia power, which is essentially the same thing for all intents and purposes. His morals and his judgment are both compromised as well. And later in Godfather 2, he has an interaction with a senator from Nevada who he's trying to buy influence with, essentially. And here's an interaction that they had. 
was trying to pass yourselves off as decent Americans. I'll do business with you, but the fact is that I despise your masquerade, the dishonest way you pose yourself, yourself and your whole fucking family. Now, notice how Michael called it a hypocrisy and compared, again, compared his mafia-like business to the senator and his, quote, representation in the business, if you want to call it that, of politics. And you'll notice that the senator didn't really disagree with that particular assessment. He just mostly didn't like the idea of people like Michael Corleone. He didn't like Italians, essentially, having the kind of power that he had. That was really the problem. It wasn't, neither one of them really has a problem with power. Certainly the senator does not, but certainly they both want to acquire it. That's where they have something in common. And, but again, the senator is just basically, uh, he looks down on Italian people. Now, what I'd say he means by the hypocrisy there, if I may infer my own thoughts here, it's just this idea that, oh, well, the government's here for your own good. The mafia is here for your own good. You notice that that theme is also very similar. And it's also, it, it's throughout government propaganda and even Italian gangsters will tell themselves that they're there for your own good. And indeed, when Michael's father, young Vito Corleone, when he's stealing some goods, he runs into a man who named Don Fanucci, who claims territory, who claims the territory that Vito has been ripping people off from, let's put it that way. So, again, hey, another interaction. Let's get a little taste of that, even though he's talking in Italian here. I'll, I'll give you the translation in just a second. So he asks him, capish there at the end, very forcefully. You, you heard his tone went from sort of friendly to, hey, buddy, no big deal, to there at the very end. Hey, capish, you got me? So here's what he said. Don Fanucci tells Vito Corleone, again, their young Vito played by Robert De Niro. He says, young man, I hear you and your friends are stealing goods, but you don't even send a dress to my house. No respect. You know I've got three daughters. This is my neighborhood. You and your friends should show me some respect. You should let me wet my beak a little. I hear you and your friends cleared $600 each. Give me $200 each for your own protection. I'll forget the insult. You young punks have to learn to respect a man like me. Otherwise, the cops will come to your house, and your family will be ruined. Of course, if I'm wrong about how much you stole, I'll take a little less. And by less, I only mean a 100 bucks less. Now, don't refuse me. Understand, Paisan? Understand, Paisan? 
tell your friends I don't want a lot just to le- just to wet my beak. Don't be afraid to tell them. I thought it was interesting that they chose basically a third there. He said, oh, hey, give me 200 bucks of your $600. He almost could have said, just pay me your fair share. He could have almost said that. And isn't it interesting that it is about a third, which eh, if you're at the very, very high end of income tax and you're a federal income tax, eh, that's probably about what you're paying, especially if you have a bad accountant. But anyway, uh, again, the implicit threat there was, well, actually it was an explicit threat in this particular case, but it's both implicit and explicit when it comes to the government and the mafia. See, they they sort of like to blanket over the fact that everything they do is based upon aggression and you complying with their aggressive behavior because if you ever say, hey, if you don't want to, so, no, I don't want to do that. No, you again, you don't have a choice. It's an offer that you can't refuse. And again, notice that, f- forget about the idea that Vito was obviously stealing goods there. Well, actually, don't forget about it. The point I'm trying to make here is it doesn't matter that he's stealing. See, there's other scenes in the movie that shows that he's aggressing upon butchers, you know, and, and simple small business owners that aren't stealing anything. No, he's the one. Don Finucci is stealing from everybody, the crooks and the non-crooks, the, the, the good citizens. He's, he's stealing from them all equally. And notice even though he's talking about, oh, hey, give me $200 for your own protection, he's not returning any stolen goods to anybody. He just wants his bit of the kitty. It's almost like when the government, when cops seize assets and in a crime, in a suspected crime, and then when it turns out that that person is innocent, well, those seized assets are never never given back, very rarely, which is, of course, yet another example of how political power corrupts the morals and the judgment. And honestly, you know, the fifth time, sixth time, however many times it's been that I've watched The Godfather, I'm starting to wonder if maybe there's a bit of a I don't know, maybe libertarian is too strong of a word, but certainly an anti-government sentiment in it. And part of the reason I I do sort of say libertarian is this movie has a really interesting and good, in my opinion, grasp of history. In The Godfather Part Two, when Michael is making arrangements in Cuba with Cuban businessmen, people who have interests in Cuba, that is, he starts talking about the Civil War and the current situation. You see, the, the most mainstream people at the time thought that the Cuban government was too powerful to be toppled by Castro and the rebels. Well, obviously, they ended up being wrong, and Michael talks about why that ended up happening. He kind of saw it coming. I saw an interesting thing happen today. A rebel was being arrested by the military police. And rather than be taken alive, he exploded a grenade he had hidden in his jacket. He killed himself, and he took a captain of the command with him. Right, Johnny? Those rebels, you know, they're lunatics. Maybe so. But it occurred to me, the soldiers are paid to fight. The rebels aren't. What does that tell you? They can win. So again, the guy in the background there said, oh, the rebels are lunatics, just very dismissively just very dismissively taking the mainstream sort of idea there in Cuba. Most people thought, oh, come on, you can't actually take out the government. Well, I'm sure most people 
Didn't think that Don Fanucci could be taken out either, but Vito Corleone did it, and then he became Don Corleone. Well, similarly, nobody thought that, again, that the Cuban government at the time could be toppled by these lunatic rebels, but Castro did it, and then he became the corrupt, morally corrupt and judgment-impaired idiot that he was. And it was also notable that the suicide bomber here, well, while that may be a lunatic move, it was certainly an effective war maneuver. So he took out a captain. He didn't just take out some random police officer. And that's a very important thing to note because historically, the way you win a guerrilla war, the way you take out, especially if you're going to try to remove people from trying to invade your country, or just try to remove a dictatorial power from your country, you're going to want to attack the officers. You're going to want to attack the people who are in charge because you need to scare the living crap out of them. That's one great way to win a war. See, go after the people at the top. Don't go after the peons. Don't go after the pawns. No, you got to go after the rooks and the knights and the king and the queen if you see them. Oh, if you got a shot at the king, you better take it. See, that's when people start going, wait a minute, I'm going to get killed? I don't want to get, I don't want to go into this country. So that was a, I don't know, just an interesting thing there. There's a lot to talk about in terms of guerrilla defense, but I just thought it was noteworthy that the Godfather seemed to have a bit of a nod to guerrilla warfare there. Then later on in the film, we get a flashback to when Michael told the family that he was enlisting after Pearl after the Pearl Harbor attacks was when he decided to enlist in World War II. And again, we get a really another really interesting clip here in terms of just something a viewpoint about World War II and it's just kind of an offhanded remark here that you just wouldn't hear in in movies today. I, I really I've never heard you very rarely hear sort of the non-mainstream take on World War II, and especially the Pearl Harbor attacks. Essentially what we learn is America was minding its own business, and then one day the Japanese sneak attacked Pearl Harbor. That's basically what the mainstream textbooks have been telling us for years. So I thought it was really interesting that we had a bit of a different take here. Now the first voice you're going to hear is that of James Kahn, who's playing Sonny Corleone. And he comes in pretty hot with his take on the Japanese. So uh, if you're sensitive and with the kids, maybe turn down the volume a little bit. But uh, you're an adult. You can, you can handle it. You know what to do, right? But anyway, he's very upset about Pearl Harbor. But he's also not big on his little brother enlisting either, which is not which is actually one of the two non sort of mainstream things you'd see here he's saying oh my god he's not exactly mr patriot here as far as immediately wanting his little brother to jump into the fray but then also you've got robert duvall playing tom hagan and he's the one who very quickly sort of says puts a throws a wrench into the oh it was a sneak attack and nobody could have saw this coming theory so let's hear that what do you think of the nerve of them chaps, eh? Them slanty-eyed bastards, huh? Drop the bombs in our own backyard on Pop's birthday. Yeah. They didn't know it was Pop's birthday. They didn't know it was Pop's <laughs> Well, we should have expected it after the oil embargo. What do you expect? Wow. Expected or not, they got no right dropping bombs. What are you, a jack lover or something on their side? 
I understand 30,000 men enlisted this morning. Bunch of saps. Bunch <laughs> of saps. Lenny, come on, we don't have to talk about the war. Hey, Beep, you talk to Carl, all right? They're saps because they risk their lives for strangers. Oh, that's pop talking. You're goddamn right, that's pop talking. They risk, they risk their lives for their country. Your country ain't your blood, you remember that. I don't feel that way. I don't feel that way. Well, if you don't feel like that, why don't you just quit college and go to go to join the army? I did. I enlisted in the Marines. Mikey, why? Why didn't you come to us? What do you mean? I mean, Pop had to pull a lot of strings to get your deferment. I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask for a deferment. I didn't want it. So again, Robert Duvall says, Tom Hagen, I should say, Tom Hagen, the character, says, well, we should have expected it after the oil embargo. Now, why is that important? Well, did you know that prior to Pearl Harbor, prior to the oil embargo, that Japan actually got most of its oil from the United States of America? You see, Japan's a small, relatively small island nation that doesn't have hardly any oil of its own, particularly in the 1940s. So strategically, them attacking their only supplier of oil. And again, in war, what's more important than oil in modern warfare? I can't really think of much other than perhaps manpower, I guess. I don't know. You tell me. If you're going to do the big machine, big tank, big big aircraft carrier, planes, if you're going to do that kind of warfare, you need oil, right? So, again, really poor strategic move by the Japanese if indeed that was just a sneak attack. But like he said... No, it wasn't simply just a sneak attack. There was an oil embargo by the by the government. Now, I'm not going to sit here and we can talk about the oil embargo. The point was, it's just interesting to see this depicted, this idea that, oh, I guess the entire country wasn't totally 100% in agreement on World War II and its fallout, as is often depicted in so many other movies. So, Again, this is why I love The Godfather. They just don't make these types of movies anymore in just so many different ways. Not only just the, just a, a, really a telling, just an epic telling of a family and just the types of sets and the types of costumes and, and just the amount of, of literal people and, and in, these, in these scenes from New York, from the turn of the century. I mean, it's just astonishing stuff. Absolutely none of it is CGI. And it's just beautiful, beautiful storytelling, beautiful music. The whole thing is just a a true achievement. And not only that, to me, it's putting out a lot of non-mainstream, sort of anti-government, sort of, hey, maybe question political power a little bit more ideas that really have kind of gone a little bit by the wayside in recent years, in my opinion. But again, you know, 1970s were a different time. It was a time of Vietnam and different things. And certainly the baby boomers were coming of age. And, you know, 72 was when The Godfather came out. That's, you know, three years after Woodstock. You know, times were changing dramatically. And I just think it's such an interesting, beautiful period of film. And once again, obviously, if you've listened to this whole thing you've probably watched the godfather by now but if you haven't go check it out and i'll just leave you with one more thought once again political power corrupts the morals and the judgment and really if you think about it how could it not 
if any of us had super like powers, Superman like powers, we had the tip of our finger, we could essentially obliterate anyone on the planet with a drone or a nuclear bomb or whatever. We have a massive army at the tip of our fingers to dispatch. And we had a whole bunch of people around us who had generals, generals, uh, you know, decorated war veterans and, and supposed brilliant people in Washington, D.C. and veterans. And all of them are telling you that, sir or ma'am, we need to go to war now. We need to dispatch these troops. We need to drop bombs in Yemen. We need to drop bombs in Syria. We need to drop bombs in whatever godforsaken country. And I only say that just because not even to insult those countries. It's actually quite the opposite. What I'm trying to say is they're a long way from America. That's the point. They can't really hurt us. If we leave them the hell alone, believe me, there's plenty of fighting and ancient rivalries that go back a lot longer than America. So you know what? Let's leave them to it. And let's be let's say no to aggression and say yes to defense. Because you know what? I'm not a pacifist. Don't misunderstand. I just hate aggression. But you come throw an elbow at me, you can expect to have one flying right back at you. So, with that lovely thought, let's get out of here on this afternoon and yeah, go for a walk. A nice peaceful walk. All right, everybody. Take it easy.